learning and teaching in medicine still operates largely on an apprenticeship model where we learn from what we've seen. And our goal is to bring in guest researchers highlighting their experiences, both from the medical student and resident perspective, as well as the chief investigators to learn what has worked best. don't mind just giving us a brief introduction and then um oh, and then we'll we can go from there all right, all right. you go first dr fox i was gonna say you go first mckenzie <laughs> i said yeah so since since i'm i'm the men i'm the mentor i get to tell you to go first <laughs> <laughs> all right all right well my name is mckenzie nairt and i am a second year resident in OBGYN um at a program in Boston. We are at both Brigham and Women's Hospital and Massachusetts General Hospital affiliated with Harvard. Um, and before this, I was at Mount Sinai Medical School, which is where I met Dr. Fox. I did my medical degree as part of a five-year combined program where I also did a master's of science in clinical research and got to spend a year doing research with Dr. Fox. Whoa. What a good segue. <laughs> Dr. Fox. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I am a uh... Nady Fox. I am <laughs> best known for working with Mackenzie for a year. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm an OBGYN and practicing maternal fuel medicine specialist. I'm in private practice in New York City. Uh, I have an academic affiliation with Mount Sinai, and that's where uh, I had the good fortune to meet Mackenzie and work with her, uh, as well as, of course, other terrific students and residents uh, and fellows. And I'm happy to be here. Great. Thank you. Um, well, today we're thinking about highlighting the article, The Association Between First Trimester Subchorionic Hematomas and Pregnancy Loss in Singleton Pregnancies, as well as maybe briefly the follow-up article. But before we dive into the details, um, it sounds like this was a serendipitous meeting, but can you tell us a little bit about how you two got into contact? Mackenzie, did you know who you wanted to work with? Was that something you were always interested in? How did, how did this happen? Yeah. So during my third year of med school is when I was doing all of my rotations, of course. And after my OBGYN rotation, I decided I absolutely want to go into OBGYN. And so it just made sense that that's what I should do my research year in. And so I don't know if you know this, Dr. Fox, I met with probably 10 different potential research mentors Ooh. as I was encouraged to do by my program. And I heard about Dr. Fox from a student the year above me who had also worked with Dr. Fox for a year and had, of course, just the most fabulous things to say. And she said, oh, if you're doing OBGYN research for you, you obviously have to work with Dr. Fox. And so I met with him. And after our first meeting, I think I just, I just knew I was just, you know, could tell he was so enthusiastic about both research and also mentoring medical students. Um, and he agreed to, to take me on. And that, that was the beginning. That's great. Dr. Fox, can you tell us a little bit about what you enjoy? What do I enjoy uh, in life? <laughs> oh, no, yeah. I mean, yes, I'm happy. But I mean, I enjoy, it, I enjoy it, this. This is fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's clear that your enthusiasm for, mm. for mentoring and working with students um, shown through from the beginning. And so what, what do you like about that? Yeah, well, first of all, Mackenzie is so sweet. 
Uh, <laughs> she signed on because basically we we pay for their food, and students will do anything to get free food. It's uh, not wrong. It's not wrong. We have, <laughs> we have breakfast and coffee and whatever. No, I, listen, I I started doing research myself um, when I was a fellow in MFM. You know, I had a research project when I was a resident, uh, but I really didn't know much about it or do much research myself until my fellowship. Uh, I was really fortunate. Uh, I did my fellowship at Cornell, and I learned under Steve Chasen was my fellowship director. He does a lot of research, and so I got into it pretty early with him. And then when I wanted to continue it during my career, I wanted to be practicing MFM. Ironically, it just worked out that private practice was the best way for me to do research. It's I know it sounds backwards, but the practice I joined was very encouraging of it. I actually got protected time to do research and um, some funding to do research. And there's a lot less sort of bureaucracy in a practice. You know, if we wanted to we need a statistician, just do it. Like there wasn't a lot of paperwork to, to set up. So I got to start doing research uh, in practice. And then over time, you know, because I'm at Mount Sinai, we had an opportunity to work with residents and then students got on board. And I don't know, I just, I, I really enjoy it. I've always liked to teach and it's nice to be around people who are, you know, younger than me and enthusiastic and full of energy. And it's just been great uh, from a practical level. Uh, if you find a really good student or Residents like Mackenzie, you get so much done. It's unbelievable because I'm, I'm like working all day seeing patients and Mackenzie's like plowing through databases, the machine. And so it, it's, it was really, it's not just like me giving to her. She gave so much to me uh, in terms of the ability to do this. I've never been able to do this project uh, without her, zero chance. Uh, and so it was, it was mutually beneficial and a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, was the project already sort of formed? Did you have an idea that you knew you wanted to look at this and then, you know, Mackenzie came along and could be the workhorse or was it more a collaboration? Like, how did it get started? Mackenzie, do you remember? I don't even remember how, how the idea came about. So, so you had already worked on, like started the twin, looking at subchorionic hematomas in twins. Hmm. With, uh, like Dr. Nockvi had kind of spearheaded that project before. And then I remember us meeting and we talked through like 10 different, Dr. Fox has like a list of like research projects that he's thinking of. Just whenever he thinks of an idea, he adds it into this like database of research. <laughs> and we were like looking through your list of projects and then talking about some projects I had thought about. And Dr. Nockvi was just across the hall in another office. And she said, hey, what about subchorionic hematomas and singletons? Like, we need to look at that. Like, I, I really want to know um what the results would be and so we started talking to her and the three of us just kind of powwowed and decided that this would be a good project um and I sort of wanted a project that I could take from start to finish so instead of like hopping on something um that was already started since I had a whole year it was a pretty unique opportunity to really you know be able to see something through from the IRB to publication and so we decided this was a good project people were excited about it um, we talked to, I talked to a few of the other doctors, um, that work with Dr. Fox to, to sort of see what the interest was. Cause I really wanted to do something that was going to be clinically useful and answer mm -hmm. a question that people had. Um, and a lot of people had this question. So we decided it was a great project for me to, to me to start the year with. Yeah. When, when I'm, when I'm working with students or residents, I mean, I, there's a few, not rules, but sort of things that I want to make sure happen. And the first is you want, you don't want to start a project you can't finish. Because, I mean, mm -hmm. there's obviously value in working on a project, like hopping in and hopping out. But 
ideally you want to do that. So a lot of it depends on how much time is someone going to be spending with me. So some people, you know, will have six weeks in the summer rotation and other people are coming for just two weeks of an intense research thing. Uh, but Mackenzie had a year. And so when someone has a year, we really want to think of a, like a bigger project. First of all, it's going to take more time. And also we have the ability to slow down and let her really lead. Right. So if we tried to do this project in six weeks with Mackenzie on board, it wouldn't have worked because she wouldn't have time to write it and to do the IRB and this. So with a year, we wanted to think of something new that would be hers. She would have ownership of it. The thought was she'll collect the data, she'll analyze the data, she'll write the paper. Right? It'll be all hers with obviously me helping. Uh, and since she had a full year to do it, we're able to, to map that out. Uh, whereas other projects, you know, we'll, we'll try to, you know, uh, modify based on how much time they have. Can I jump in with two questions about that? Um, one is how much uh, of, of selecting this project was driven by your MSCR uh, program requirements? Um, mm. So like, did you know you yeah. had to learn how to use a big database or did you did the project you did for that, did it have to go from IRB to uh, publication. How did that yeah. do it? Uh, and then the yeah, other. So my. No, I'm sorry. The other question, um, and and uh, I, I guess we're calling you Dr. Fox. Um, <laughs> so so I, I want to make sure we're all using. I, I the thing that I always worry about is that I call the guy Dr. Fox, and then I mm. call. Mackenzie and Ashley by their first name. I mean, I, that just drives me a little nuts. So, but, but, you, ne- but you never call me Doctor Fox, anyways. Why are you starting now? Okay, so can, <laughs> can, I, can I call you Nancy? Yeah, uh, I'm calling you Nancy. So I okay, so. there we go. So we're all on the same playing field here, Nancy. All right. Um, since you have, um, you know, so um, successfully married being in private practice an academic position and research, um, what I would love to hear you tell us a little bit about, because I'm sure there are others listening to this who might be interested in it, is how does the IRB work in that situation? Um, So if you can jump in with that after Mackenzie tells us about how this all worked with her MSCR, that'd be great. Yeah, so with the program I was doing, it was a one-year Master's of Science in Clinical Research. So we took all of the master's coursework. Um, And then the main focus, of course, was the research project. The requirements were pretty open-ended. It was just that we have some sort of thesis that we can publish at the end of the year. So people did a variety of projects. Um, Some were more basic science, some were translational, and then some were pretty purely clinical research. Um, And, you know, other than that, it was pretty open-ended. So some people hopped onto existing projects. Um, Some people, you know, did basic science that they weren't really able to complete in a year as basic science research goes. Um, And other, you know, other people did something in between. So I think I sort of went into the year with personal goals, which I, you know, talked to Dr. Fox about. And one of those was sort of seeing a project through from beginning to end. Other goals were just sort of learning how to do some basic statistics and, you know, going through the whole project process of writing a manuscript. So those were sort of more things that I wanted to be able to do at the end of a year so that, now as a busy re- busy resident and potentially one day as a busy fellow, I would sort of have some of that groundwork under my belt um, so that now when I have, you know, work 80-hour weeks and have, have one day off a week, um, I'm still able to sort of squeeze into some research since since I know how to sort of set up a project and, and do some of those basic things. 
Yeah. And I think right. that's just so incredibly important is to have it really clear what you're trying to get out of it um, so yep. that you can structure totally. whatever the interaction is around what your your goals are. So that was really helpful, Mackenzie. Nady? Yeah, just, just, just to add to what Mackenzie said before I answer your question is, the program is amazing that they have at Mount Sinai. I, I was I was unaware of it until, you know, I started working with students in that program. But it's as Mackenzie said, it's a little open ended in terms of what they need to do. But it's sort of a like a supported, mentored, and taught program from the from the sort of medical school side. So while we were doing our research, Mackenzie was in parallel meeting with like the group of students and the professors going over research methods, going over the studies, going over statistics and really like workshopping things. And it was mm -hmm. so impressive. You know, they would have to present every quarter where they are with their data. And it was a very, very impressive program. Um, so I think that that was very helpful. And one of the goals Mackenzie did not mention, but came true is at the end of the year, having a t-shirt with your photo on it. So that's goal accomplished uh, every year. So we celebrate that. Um, so Nancy, your question was about IRB. And so IRB is probably the, I don't want to say it in a pejorative way, it is the rate limiting step to sort of getting these projects underway. Um, again, I'm not pejorative about it because it, it's important. You have to do it obviously, uh, but it is a lot of work. And the way I do it is it depends on the project. So if it's a project that's going to require data from our hospital, you know, inpatient and outpatient records, or which is EPIC, which is what we currently use. Uh, then it goes through the Mount Sinai IRB, and that's, you know, they have their process and this. It actually got a lot quicker with the world of Zoom, um, but it's it, that was a, a big process. If it's a project that I'm doing where I don't need to go into hospital records, but it's just our office records, um, you still do have to do IRB. You can't, we can't do research on our office records without, you know, proper um you know approval and so we do it but we have a, a different irb it's called the biomedical research alliance of new york uh which is an irb set up it was an originally set up i think i believe so that a lot of the new york institutions were able to do um like pharma research i believe you know amongst different institutions so it sort of linked them all uh but you could also submit a project to them uh, and it's the same, you know, the same long application and all the documents and papers and they go back and forth with, you know, the risk and all that. And so we, we do it through there. It's just a little bit uh, logistically easier to get it done. Uh, but either way, uh, I do all that paperwork. That's that takes some time. Thank you. I, I hope to God that I have students and residents to do it, though, because it, it, it changes <laughs> my life. Um, but I do it. I And whatever. That's that's part. It's part of the world of research. For people that may not have come across the paper yet, and I say yet because I'm sure that they'll be inspired after listening to this, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about the key points? So um, were you surprised by the findings? You know, did it match your expectations? Yeah, of course. Um, so our primary paper and primary project was looking at subchorionic hematomas that were diagnosed in the first trimester of pregnancy and looking at the rates of pregnancy loss. Um, and I think, you know, talking to different people, you know, during medical school and now as a resident, I think, you know, 
a lot of people are concerned, and certainly patients are concerned, that when they have a subchorionic hematoma, they're going to have an increased risk of miscarriage. And there have been sort of lots of papers that we looked at in depth um, before and during the research project, and especially when we were finally writing up the results that do show an association between a subchorionic hematoma and um, an increased rate of miscarriage. However, when we really did like a deep dive into these papers, we found that they often didn't control um, for a lot of important important variables, like, for example, vaginal bleeding and other things um, that are really important to control for, of course, when you're looking for rates of pregnancy loss, uh, especially in the first trimester. Um, and so yeah, definitely just in talking about it, my next follow up was going to be <laughs> about the really extensive discussion that you had at the end of the paper talking about all the other literature that really had a lot of flaws in it. So I guess you stole my thunder, exactly. but we'll, we'll get to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stole your thunder a little bit, but I think, and I think that was sort of, you know, part of the driving, driving motivation. Cause of course, you know, most clinical questions you can ask and go into PubMed or Google Scholar and you'll find some results, and then you just have to really look at the evidence behind the results and look at the sample size and look at, you know, the quality of the data to sort of make your own clinical decisions, as we all do every day as doctors in using evidence-based medicine to counsel our patients. Um, and so in doing that, you know, we weren't super satisfied with the data, but um, we built this whole database and, you know, using patients from the practice, we were able to really collect all of the clinical information, including demographic and other clinical variables, um, and were able to control for those in our analysis, and found that there was not an increased rate of pregnancy loss in patients with first trimester subchorionic hematomas once you controlled for gestational age and vaginal bleeding. Um, it's interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in, Mackenzie, because please. it's part of the reason we did the project. You know, one of the things that, that you really want to do when you're doing research is you have to work with what you have, right? Like I could yeah. say I want to do research on people with kidney transplants, but I only see a couple of them a year. But for, <laughs> you know, the, the literature on hematomas is so biased, not just because you couldn't control for those things, but why did someone get diagnosed? I mean, why did exactly. they have a first trimester ultrasound? So if it's done because they have a history of miscarriages, because they're older, because there's IVF, because they're bleeding, then clearly finding the hematoma it's not maybe the hematoma could be the indication. So one of the things, the advantages we had in terms of our own um, data is we have a very large prenatal practice. We do a thousand deliveries a year. All of them are with us and we routinely get first trimester ultrasounds on all of them. So you can't randomize people to have a hematoma or not, obviously, but since we're getting it on everybody, regardless of their history, their bleeding, their this or their that, there wasn't this bias sort of in terms of selection. And that, even though, all right, we're a higher risk practice, okay, we have to control for those things. There wasn't that selection bias that you see um, in a lot of the other studies. And I think we said, this is a really unique opportunity to look at this um, because we do all these first trimester scans. Exactly. So you had a follow-up paper later on in 2019. It was a big year. You all did, you know, uh, <laughs> Uh, first trimester losses, and then you did outcomes after 20 weeks. How did you decide to split the, that data set up into those two papers? Yeah, so I think it sort of just ended up being the chronology that we did the research. So we sort of built the initial database and 
you know, as I was building the database and, you know, we were just looking at a single time point. So looking at patients with first trimester subchorionic hematomas. But as I was doing the chart review um, and I had a few other medical students helping with the chart review, um, you know, I sort of started to get curious, you know, how is it different if this is a subchorionic hematoma that's just seen on one ultrasound at one point in time? as opposed to patients who had them over many ultrasounds into the second trimester and further. Um, so I think that was sort of the first part of it. So we ended up going back and looking at subsequent ultrasounds. Um, and then, of course, you know, when most people are worried about subchorionic hematomas, they're thinking, okay, this is in the first trimester. And what most people are worried about at that point is pregnancy loss. Like, am I going to continue to have a viable pregnancy? But, you know, thinking down the road, once people have made it past that point, and once we in our research had shown that there wasn't an association with pregnancy loss, we kind of wanted to see, you know, down the road, are there any adverse outcomes associated with this early finding? Um, and there had been you know, various studies that showed some showed associations with adverse outcomes later in pregnancy, and some showed there were no associations with adverse outcomes later in pregnancy. And so we wanted to see, you know, from our own database, um, what that looked like. It, it was it was not an example of shameless over public, you know, publishing, uh, Nancy, because I know you're accusing us of that right now. But, um, <laughs> No, no, no the, the salami slicing question comes up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, and this what this to me is clearly not a salami slice, but I just wanted to hear you all talk about it. Yeah, no, we, we, we actually, ideally you put it all in one paper because the clinical oh, question really huge. is you see someone, you know, at eight weeks and there's a hematoma and it's two by three centimeters and she's not bleeding. What do you say to her, right? Do you say mm. nothing? Do you say your risk of miscarriage or not? And obviously later in pregnancy and so ideally, it'd be in the same paper. The problem was it was just too much, yeah. right? You can't put all that in one paper. Uh, it just it would it'd be over the word limits. It's too much stuff. So I actually split it up into two different papers. And the, the methods are slightly different in terms of how you include people and exclude people. So, uh, all right. But, um, you know, it, it's just one of these things you have to just figure out how many outcomes you're looking at. And is it going to be too big for one paper uh, rather than just split it up and make it a little bit simpler? And to pad McKenzie's CV. <laughs> We, you know, we made the timing so things were coming out just right as I was applying to residency. So. Yeah, there you go. That's perfect. We had to, we had to optimize, you know. <laughs> the next couple of questions we've sort of touched upon a little bit, but Mackenzie, you have mentioned that you're a resident and busy, which is, I think, everyone can relate to that. Um, so how do you find time? You talked about kind of being more strategic in terms of your time and just kind of optimizing to know exactly what you're doing. How do you how do you become efficient during residency working? Not more than 80 hours. No, of course. Not. To ACG are, you right one, are you on one of your uh, prescribed nap times right now? Are you <laughs> no, on one of resident nap times now? What, what are what are resident nap times? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we don't get those. Um, yeah, so, you know, so I'm now, I guess, eight weeks into my second year of residency. And so the advice I got from, I think, senior residents, and I think most people would, would agree with this advice, I think Dr. Fox said this at some point, too, is that during intern year, your goal is to try to learn to be a doctor. <laughs> and you're working so much and everything is new and you're, you know, learning everything for the first time. And that that should really be, you know, your full attention. And in the little bit of time you have outside of the hospital, you know, you should be focused on wellness, sleeping, eating, and if you're lucky, a little bit of exercise. 
which is what I did, Can't all of those help. things, and also planning a planning a COVID wedding. <laughs> ah, exactly, and mental health. And, um, you know, then as you get towards the end of your intern year, and especially for us as a second year, when we have some, some lighter rotations, that's when you can sort of start to think about research. So that's what I did. And, and I'm really glad, glad I did it that way, because there's really not a whole lot of extra time intern year. And I sort of started meeting with a few research mentors um, who had been recommended to me towards the end of intern year to start some projects, which I'm working on now. And I think, you know, I think the main thing, which was the case during medical school as well, but less so, is to really pick one to two projects that you're interested in. I think people so easily get stretched very thin and, you know, a lot of people, we, we all have so many interests, both, both research and leadership and otherwise, and there just isn't isn't time for the to do a bunch of different things um, like you could in medical school and certainly in college and before. And so I think, you know, picking one to two projects and ideally things that you're really interested in, such that, you know, when I have a little downtime on labor and delivery or in clinic, um, you know, instead of just futzing around and checking my email, maybe I'm interested, maybe I can, you know, get 10 patients into my red cap or, or do, do a little literature review and work on research, I think you know, being in residency is is difficult and is exhausting and sort of mustering up energy for other things can certainly be difficult. But I think obviously, if it's something you're interested in, it's going to be a lot easier to do that. And you're going to be more motivated to use those little pockets of time to do research um, in, instead of res for resident nap time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then I guess to flip it, you know, I don't know if, you know, being my first time meeting you, I'm not sure if I could really call you Nady. So <laughs> no worries. It's all good. <laughs> um, but you're an MFM, you have a ton of research going on, and you also have a podcast too. Mm. <laughs> oh, there we go. Now the important stuff. Because yeah. He's been yeah. on the podcast twice. Yeah, I, that was my first podcast. Well, my first and second podcast experiences. And that was my third, still with Dr. Fox. Wow. Yeah, that was it for podcast, you know, from medical school or residency. Is it really like Grey's Anatomy? <laughs> oh, perfect. Um, yeah. So I guess the question is, can you tell us a little bit more about that and like how you, how that started and how you manage it all? Um, so I'll tell you how it started. It, it's interesting. So I, I've, I have been doing research along with my clinical practice, which I love, and I, I continue to love it. But one of the things, you know, there's this idea of like every, you know, 10 to 15 years, you always try to pivot and try to, you know, something new. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I was, what I was realizing was that, you know, I really love the research and it's fun and it's, you know, intellectually stimulating. I get to work with, you know, McKenzie and amazing students and residents, but the scope, like the, the reach of, of research, you know, mm. it's just, it's limited, right? So if I, if we do a great project and 200 doctors read this paper, I'm like floored. It's unbelievable. It's the greatest thing ever. But, you know, I was thinking there isn't, I'm not doing anything to reach like the audience I, I truly care about, which are not doctors, but my patients, right? You know, women, like people who are going to be pregnant or are pregnant or, you know, that's sort of the population I really want to reach. And so at the time, I was having this, you know, thought process. I started listening to podcasts for the first time. And I, you know, I'm, I'm an idiot. I was, you know, sports, movies. Like, I don't listen to anything intellectual ever. Um, and I said, you know what? I wonder if there's anything good for women's health or pregnancy. And 
I found there's basically two things out there. There's either ones that are sort of run by, you know, regular folk, you know, mm-hmm. like whether they're people who are like in media or entertainment and they're sort of well done, but they're not very deep because the right. people interviewing don't really know the right questions to ask or can't follow it up, which is understandable, or they're run by doctors and they're horrifically boring. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, you can't, you can't listen more than eight seconds. And I said, let's try this. So, you know, um, I don't take myself too seriously. So mm-hmm. I, I will start it. And we started, you know, dropping podcasts and interviewing people and it's really taken off. It's been awesome. And um, it's a lot of fun. I have, you know, listeners email me and, write in and suggestions and then we started the second podcast where people can tell their own birth story um oh, so it's not cool. really the informational but it's more like the, the human interest side of it so people to tell their like you know i can give a whole podcast about preterm birth and make it interesting even but it's about preterm birth but to hear from a woman tell her story or a couple tell her their story what's it like to deliver twins at 24 weeks from their end um, and it's been awesome. I just, I love it. So I spend a lot of time podcasting and things related to podcasting right now. Yeah. And I love the idea of crowdsourcing, you know, asking the audience in terms of, you know, what do they want to hear? And it sounds like, you know, the themes are pretty similar. I mean, you had a clinical question because you couldn't counsel patients on if they were at an increased risk for pregnancy loss, because we didn't have this data or the evidence to kind of guide us in what to tell us. And then sort of on the flip side, you know, patients might be really looking for these sort of answers, but they don't have access to that information, whether or not it's in the literature. Yeah. And it's hard, it's hard to understand. You have access to it. It's not, you know, medical studies, like this paper on subcarine hematomas, like we, we write pretty straightforward, but it's not the type of things like patients would read, right? They don't, it's, right. it's just not the type of thing yeah. they, they go, they go to the Google, as you know. And so, for me, it's just also been so helpful, you know, I'm meeting, uh, you know, I met with someone today, for example, you know, a new pregnant patient, we're talking about this, talking about that, and they're shooting me all these questions, and, you know, you could spend eight years talking to people, because it's so interesting, and I'll say, you know what, if you want more, like, you want to talk about exercise and pregnancy, let's do it, but listen to the podcast, like, you know, Melka and I talked about exercise for an mm-hmm. hour, you can hear all about it, and if you're interested, and if you're not interested in exercise, listen about something else that interests you, and it's been really helpful for us for counseling women because you know how much time do you have to spend talking about genetic testing and nutrition and exercise if you really spent all the time counseling your first ob visit would take you know a week and a half right so this is a way to it's user friendly in that sense i think at least for the listeners if it's not you know people can give us feedback and we'll change it obviously yeah um well i think that i don't want to take up too much of your time i just had um sort of wanted to open it up to either of you to see if, well, first of all, if Nancy, do you have any other, any questions? No, you've kind of covered it um, really beautifully. And I, I um, do, do want to say that not only did we want to talk to you two individually, but one of the reasons we picked the paper that we did to talk about is it's early in the cycle uh, for residents. Um, a lot of people are probably in their first ED rotation uh, or where they're covering the ED and they're, they need to know how to deal with this question because it, it is a common question. Um, I will tell you that I have an uh, epic dot phrase that is from your discussion um, uh, of this paper, and that's how I counsel patients is based on this paper. Um, oh, that's awesome. So, wow, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. 
Um, so it, it changed my practice and I think has helped patients a lot. So I appreciate that you all undertook this. But no, I had, so cool. I had nothing else to add. Well, do either of you have any parting thoughts for any of our residents and young physicians? I know some... <laughs> you say something smart. No, I'll just say it's I think harder and harder every day. <laughs> oh, please. I think, you know, I think advice I got early on is that, you know, the ideal scenario is you're so interested as as a resident or a medical student or, you know, probably as a faculty member too in a planning research project, you know, the ideal scenario is that you're so interested in the research and you have an amazing research mentor. But I think early on, a lot of us are, are pretty open-minded, you know, people will be interested in, in MFM or ultrasound, but not necessarily have a specific clinical niche because we're all new. And I think finding a research mentor who you just really enjoy working with and who has similar goals and wants to, you know, achieve similar things for patients is really the most important thing. Because, you know, once you have that person, I mean, Dr. Fox and I just had so much fun working on research. We'd just be sitting in his office, like doing the stats and thinking of clinical questions and, you know, taking parts of our projects and thinking about what we wanted to look into next. And I think we did maybe five papers in a year and easily could have done more. And, but we just, it was just really fun. And it just made me really love working on research. And I think so many people see research as something obligatory that you have to do to get from one phase of training to the next and intend to, you know, get a job and, and at that point no longer do research. And that's just not the case for me at all because I've had so much fun doing it all along. And I think a huge part of that is because of Dr. Fox and because of the work we did together. So I think finding a mentor um, is just really one of the most important things. And as you said early on, you know, I feel very lucky to be at Mount Sinai and now at, at Brigham and MGH, where there's so many people doing such cool research um, that I have, you know, there's more projects and more people to work with than I than I ever possibly could um, in four years or even in a career. And and I know not everyone has those opportunities, but I think most places, you know, there are probably some people, you know, doing research and some people who are interested in working with with students and trainees and just sort of finding those people and making those connections um, and really, you know, just taking it from there. Oh, I paid Mackenzie to say that. Um, <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> you know, I, I, what I'll say is, first of all, I, I'm so fortunate to work with, I mean, listen, the, the future of the world is is good because of people like Mackenzie uh, coming, you know, up in the ranks and uh, we're all going to be working for her someday. Um, but it's, I just am so lucky to work with amazing students. Mackenzie's obviously, you know, the best of the best and she's positive no matter what. We tried to break her all year and we couldn't. <laughs> she, she was waiting for the t-shirt. We tried hard. We tried hard. But honestly, I think what Mackenzie says is true. Research is, it should be fun or if it's not fun, it should at least be really interesting. And if it's not interesting, you're not researching the right things. Like find something else. I mean, it, it, it's about curiosity. It's about just trying to answer a question that you don't know the answer to. Like when I do a project and I tell it to Mackenzie, I'm doing something that I, I honestly won't know the answer to it. Like yeah. I want to know. And so when you're doing the research, it makes it so much more interesting. You're like, oh my God, I wonder what the data is going to show. I wonder if the stats are going to show us. I wonder it's going to be significant. And whether it turns out yes or no, you're not rooting for one or the other, but you just want to know the answer. And if that's the case, 
it's fun because it's cool that you're really going to look into that. But if you're stuck on some project or, you know, that you don't want to be in and it's just an obligation and you say, oh, I have to do basic science. And so you go to a lab, but you don't like basic science. It's not valuable. Or on the flip side, if you love basic science and now you've got to be stuck doing clinical research, you don't like that. It's not the way to go. Make sure to do something you're interested in where you want to know the results. And that'll make it a fun, but B, it'll really help train you for your career in research, or even if you don't do research, how to read studies. It just makes you a better doctor if you understand this versus not understand it. That's my opinion. Yeah. Well, I think that that is a perfect summary. So thank you so much for being with us and joining us on the second episode. Um, and from the OBG project and everyone, everyone, I'm sure. Thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts with us. This is great. Thank you. Isn't she awesome? Isn't Mackenzie the best? You were right. She's the best. <laughs> I told you, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I don't, it's, it's crazy. No. <laughs>